Every day is a brand new adventure. So let's embark on this journey together. City News 570 presents Kitchener Today. everyone. This is Brenda Halloran, your guest radio talk show host for the next three hours on Kitchener Today. Uh, first time doing this and I'm pretty excited about it, but I'm a little bit nervous. So if you're calling in, just remember it's my first time and I'm, I've got to press some buttons and I've got to figure out stuff. But I've got Polly with me. Producer Polly, he's here to guide me through and hold my hand and uh, I'm really looking forward to a show today. We put together a great, great lineup. But, you know, I just want to talk about uh, your situation in the Ukraine. I want to talk about how fortunate we are to, to live in this region, this province, and this country. And I know we've gone through some pretty stressful times, and we've all gone through a lot. But right now, I think um, it's time to kind of rethink things about our lives here in Canada and what is going on with the families, the children, the people of the Ukraine. And um, I just want to give a shout-out to... All of us who are trying to uh, do what we can to help out. And we'll be talking about that later in the day. But, you know, I drove in here today. It's a beautiful day. It's one of those days in, in March that you know spring is coming. And we're gonna, we've made it through another winter. And it looks like we're able to do a lot more things because a lot of uh, restrictions have been lifted. And that's kind of a different, that'll make things different for us. But I want to start off the show today talking about the 5th Women's Municipal Campaign School in Waterloo Region. Um, I went to it when I first decided to run for mayor, and it it was a life changer for me. So I have on with us today Melissa Durrell, who is the president of Durrell Communications. And she has been instrumental in organizing the campaign school this time and last time, and she's done a phenomenal job. Thank you, Melissa, for dropping everything and coming on the show with us today. Um, I want to hear all about the campaign school. Thanks for having me, Brenda. I'm so excited to talk about this. Well, let's talk. (laughs) (laughs) You and I know how to talk. (laughs) So tell me about the municipal school and and why it's so important that it's it's, uh, put on every time there's a municipal election. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first thing I'd like to begin with is shouting out uh, Jane Mitchell, who is really the founder of this campaign school. And she got together with a couple of powerful women from our community many years ago. You know, I often think back to when I first came to this community in 2004 as a reporter for CTV Kitchener. And the first council I covered was Waterloo Council. You were not the mayor yet. Uh, and it was an all-male council. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, isn't this interesting? Because I typically had been covering had been covering Sudbury Council, so, several other councils uh, in, in other communities that I've been in. And then I went to Kitchener, and I think there were one or two women. I think it was one woman in Kitchener. And, and, I, and, and I started to look around, and as a reporter, seeing that there was a, this is a very male-dominated elected space, and I imagine Jane Mitchell was having those same conversations uh, with many of the elected officials in this community, and she launched uh, this first campaign school. Uh, and so, I, you know, I just want to say, you know, we wouldn't be here today without mm-hmm. her and her vision. But uh, so now we've grown, and Jane is actually retired. Uh, she will be speaking at the first day, uh, which is coming up on Sunday. So if any of your listeners are thinking about 
um, running for politics. Uh, we were particularly interested in uh, and, and the way that we're saying this is women, people who identify as women, including all diversities. Uh, we really encourage you, if you have leadership skills or you know someone who just always tends to take over chairing a meeting, you know, those mm-hmm. kind of leadership skills are really important. And we'd love to see you to come out. You don't have to put your name on the ballot on the first the first time, but just learn about what it means to be an elected official. I know many women in this community or people who identify as women often think, oh, I already have a full-time job. I couldn't fit this in. But they're involved in the community. And, you know, I, I, I often push back to say, you know, you can do this. You know, there's the school board trustees. You know, there's the regional council. There's city councils. You can look at, you know, most of our city councils are part-time jobs. Uh, and oftentimes employers will allow you to, you know, work with them to have, you know, either less hours or try to work around what that might look like for your schedule. So I just really, the first thing I want to encourage mm-hmm. people to come to our registration page, which is learnhowtorun.com and sign up, uh, register for this event. Uh, it's uh, $15, but if money is an issue, we also have had many women who have donated to allow free tickets as well. So please don't let money be an issue if you're interested in leadership and leading this community. This is, you know, I would say, Brenda, and I I wonder what your thoughts are. This is one of the most important elections we're going to have. Things are changing provincially. Uh, We've just come through a pandemic. I know a lot of the political leaders right now are burnt out Mm -hmm. and they may not be running again. We're going to see some fresh faces. We need some new perspectives as we come out of this pandemic and we grow our community. And so if you are someone who identifies as a woman, as a a person of color, please think about our community needs you. We can't just be, uh, we we need to make sea change happen. And so I encourage everyone who's listening to come and check out our website and come and just see if this is something that might be interesting to you and meet some incredible women Mm -hmm. who are, and people who identify as women uh, who have been in this place. Uh, every single person on our panel has run and been elected. And so they can share with you their stories, their challenges, uh, the opportunities uh, of, of running and getting elected and what it's meant for them in their lives. Because it changed your life, Brenda. changed my life. It, it did. So what prompted you to go to school in the first place? And why did you think about running? Yeah, so for me it was interesting because um, Catherine Fife. And I, uh, she was a school board trustee at the time, now our MPP, of course. Uh, but she had reached out to me for the first campaign school to say she was doing a bit on media training. And so she said, and at that point I was a reporter. So she said, let's team up together and we'll do the good, the bad and the ugly <laughs> of media. And, uh, and so we told some stories and, you know, encouraged people to get their key messages together. The one question every single elected official or person putting their name forward is, why are you running? You got to have a good mm-hmm. answer to that. So, you know, we talked about that. So the first time I was just there as a presenter. Um, now, I've always been interested in politics and I was covering municipal politics mm-hmm. uh, and I covered your your council you uh, between uh, 2000 and I believe it was 2006 to 2010. Yes. And I attended the 2010 campaign school. I also spoke at it as well. I did a media training as well. But in the back of my head, um, you know, I had two young children at the time and I was looking for maybe a change in my career. And politics is always called to me. I think, you know, journalism and Uh, politics are pretty similar. You know, it's about good communication skills. It's about, um, you know, listening to people, hearing their stories as a politician and telling their stories as a reporter. So it just really aligned with what I was interested in. And and to be honest, I drank the Kool-Aid. Waterloo is such an exciting city. And I really, you know, I lived in Uptown. I've always, from the moment I 
took my I moved to this community I'd lived in uptown and I just loved it and I I you know we were really prepping you know that that the this the we were just about to you know blow up really like you know there was so much going on and I really wanted to be a part of it and um, and I think, you know, uh, having good communication skills was an important part of that to be able to, to hear people and then, you know, bring it to the council and to the team, uh, the staff at Waterloo to say, this is what I'm hearing. What are we doing about this? So I was really, uh, really privileged mm-hmm. to be able to get elected, uh, run and get elected. And we were thrilled to have you as Waterloo Councillor. So we, uh, Melissa and I worked together from 2010 to 2014. And those were pre- some pretty exciting times for the city of Waterloo. And, you know, you're so right about having fresh faces, having new ideas, have helping support people who want to run. And mm-hmm. what do you think are the, the biggest barriers to women wanting to run in any election? I, the first barrier to me is being asked. So many I think there's so many capable, incredible women in this community, and we see them running community mm-hmm. events. We see them running organizations, uh, and and when you ask them, are you would you be interested in running? Oh no, I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So I think the first barrier is actually opening up and saying, you know, I can do this, and I can help make a difference from the perspective that I have in the community. So um, you know, whether you're running a, a social service here, the, your voice is needed mm-hmm. uh, around those around the government mm-hmm. chamber around that horseshoe. Um, so I think that's the first barrier. The second barrier, I think, is actually getting your campaign together. And I think that's what we do at the Women Cam- mm-hmm. Women, Women's Municipal Campaign School is how do you actually get elected? So, you know, what is the literature that you need? How do you door knock? Yeah. How do you, like, there's, like, uh, you know, how do you raise money? And I think, you know, Brenda, you and I have talked about this quite a bit, uh, you know, g- getting the funds you need mm-hmm. to, to be able to buy the signs, to be able to get the assets that you can hand out at the doors, to make those connections. I think, you know, what we're trying to build at this Women's Campaign School is, a, a, you know, women who are already elected so they can help others come up um, and share their connections and their networks. I think that's probably one of the best things you can do at the Women's Campaign School is connect with other women who've either done it or thinking about doing it. Build your team there as well. Um, because that's really important. You have to have a team around you. Yes. And I think fundraising is, uh, you know, I mentioned that before, but that's a big part of it. And so if you, if you are a woman or a woman, somebody who identifies as a woman and you are thinking about, you know, maybe running's not it, look at maybe uh, donating money to a woman who is running to help her with those costs. I think it's really important to you. So lots of call to action here Brenda there is and why do you think it's so important that we assist women and we we hold events like this to help women even think about uh, getting into politics because as you say a lot of women just feel that they don't have the skill set or they're not capable but but they're doing all these things within their own families and communities so why do you think it's so important that we get a chance to, to put all these women together in a room and listen to people who have already done it well I, I mean simply put we're, we all are in different places in this community and we need to hear those voices. So, you know, when we talk about putting a new roof on at Rim Park, well, I, I was at a volleyball tournament with my daughter and, this, and the roof was leaking. So now I see why that is important. You know, if you are retired or if you're a little bit older and you're not going into Rim Park, you don't see these things. You know, that's just one small example of, you know, whether you're, you, you've got kids who are playing on team sports. You know, the city, ha- city works on those, uh, you know, takes care of the facilities. Um, you know, uh, if you are a cyclist, 
uh, someone who chooses to walk rather than drive. I mean, those are new perspectives that we need mm-hmm. to bring around those council chambers. Every single one of us has our own lived experience. And those lived experiences, you know, when you, when you bring a bunch of lived experiences from different people to a table, you make better decisions. Oh, well so said. Think, you know, yeah, and I think that's what we, what we were missing in, mm-hmm. in this community up until this Women Counts Pain School started to get running, because now we are seeing more faces. I'd like to see more diverse faces. Mm-hmm. That is one of the things we're really missing, and I'll let you know that at the Women's Campaign School, we realized as we were reaching out to the women in the community, it was all white women. And, and so we've actually reached out to other communities in London and Toronto to get diverse faces and voices on our panels to talk about what their lived experience is. I mean, door knocking in Toronto is different than door knocking oh, in Waterloo sure. region. Yeah. However, she still will have some really great advice for people um, of colour and, and they can associate with her, which they, you know, they may or may not be able to do with, you know, a, a more white privileged woman. So we want to bring all, you know, all, all faces to this to our panels so that people can see themselves in these positions and that's you know to take it to that next level we should all be able to see ourselves reflected in the people that are representing us around those council chambers and, and that's not the case right now that's and so that true change and that's what we're working on so i know that you are you know this this amazing um communications pro and things have changed every four years when we get back into a municipal election. The world has changed. Social mm-hmm. media has changed so drastically. Mm-hmm. And what advice would you give to someone considering running how to use social media as opposed to perhaps putting up a lot of signs? Are we seeing a difference in that type of, of um, getting your name out there? Yeah, it, you know, I think it's going to be really interesting to watch how this runs because I think you're right. Door knocking for municipal is it's it's. It's a, it, that's the game. It it's is. How many doors you can get to, mm-hmm. how many people you can meet, uh, because a lot of times we don't know necessarily the names of the people that are on the ballot, so people have to meet you. So I think getting out into the public, which I think is going to be really interesting because mm-hmm. of the pandemic. And, you know, we still, while, uh, you know, the, the mandates are starting to change and we're starting to see our communi- community open up again, th- I think that will still be a challenge. I mean, People are not knocking on people's doors these days. That's no. just not the norm. It hasn't been for two years. So what's going to change there? And I, and I wonder if, you know, I'm recommending videos. People can feel wow. like they get to know you a little bit better when you have a video. And, and, and that's not new. Even we were seeing that four years ago, even when I ran in 2010, I, I launched with a video just mm-hmm. so people could see me in a different, in a different light. So I think video is, is going to be a huge opportunity, um, you know, either on your platforms, uh, your, your, the platform pieces, how you're involved in the community. So though, cause then you can email those out or they can be hosted on your social platform so people can start to get to know you. I think that's one of the things we're going to see a lot of change. But having a website, a landing page for people to come to and learn about you is still going to be really important. You know, we've kind of, is, is paper still the right thing? Like, I can't even remember how much money I spent on printing when mm-hmm. I ran for election. So, you know, we might see some of those costs start to get lowered because maybe you don't want to have as much paper. Maybe you've got digital ideas where people can download your or your PDF. They could do a QR scan, take you to your website where they can read about your literature. So, I mean, there are some things that I think, uh, you know, uh, innovative, uh, also maybe cost savings, things that can help people get their message out. Um, But I think you're right. Social media is still going to be a major part of this election. And, you know, my my advice is it's and I think I actually use your quote all the time. Brenda, I think you said once 
uh, I actually weigh five pounds. The rest of it is thick skin. So, you <laughs> it know, is my quote. Right? When you go on social, you've got to yep. have thick skin and just be positive. I mean, if you are running to make this community better, remember that every time you go on social. Because, you know, getting into the, into the weeds and the dirt and being, you know, defensive, that's not going to help you get your message out. So stay positive, stay, stay on your message and keep pushing forward. There's, there's going to be some haters out there, but what you're doing is right, especially if you're coming forward as, you know, someone who might not be your typical, you know, what we typically see as politicians in our community and we need to see you. So, you know, it's, it's okay. And, and also to know you've got a community of women that back you up. The, the women in this community are incredible. I'll mm-hmm. never forget. And you, you've experienced this as well. Uh, you know, when I had, uh, you know, a couple not so great um, cartoons come out around me and I just was all of a sudden enveloped by women in this community you who bet. said, we've got your back. Yeah. And, and, and so for every woman who's a little bit afraid, don't worry, we've got your back. Oh, I love it. That's closing lines from you because I know we dragged you from a, a, a business meeting and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. Um, Melissa, you've shown great leadership in this community and I can't wait to, to see you and hear you. Uh, on the municipal campaign. It's it's virtual. Sign up. We're all going to be there. We've all got your back. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thanks, Brenda. Hope to see everybody there on Sunday. You Take bet. Care. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. And now we're going to go to break. Good afternoon. I'm Brenda Halloran, your guest host for today on Kitchener Today. And uh, we just had a fantastic discussion with Melissa Durrell about the Women's Campaign School that's coming up, the Municipal Campaign School. And I strongly urge any one of you who are interested in running for any position locally to to come to the school, to to ask questions, to reach out. Um, As Melissa said, we're all here to support you and do anything we can to help you with your campaign. Um, I want to do something a little bit hokey, but, you know, it's my first time doing a radio show and, and I've... I just have to do a few shout-outs to people who've been sending me encouraging emails, and mainly they're my family. So, yeah, I know it's hokey. So I want to be a big shout-out to my husband, Fred, who's probably glued to the to the radio, and he doesn't. he's just mesmerized by my voice. I want to give a wonderful shout-out to my daughter. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's Fred clapping in the background. Uh, I want to give a shout-out to my daughter, Liz, who uh, her has, well, she's the love of my life next to my husband and, well, everybody else. And she um, she works in the healthcare field. And we want, her and I both want to give a shout out to all the healthcare workers who have gotten us through the pandemic. Healthcare workers in all facilities, thank you. Thank you very much. And here's a really, really hokey one. But my brother, Michael, my sister-in-law, Des, and my niece, Kelsey, are down south in Florida. Yes, I am extremely envious, but, you know, we had some sun today. And they're sitting by the pool down in Florida. So I want to give a shout out to them. And um, I hope that gin and tonic you're drinking is really cold. Are they going to get a hand clap at all? Because we're jealous. We're extremely jealous. So um, I think that's it. But, you know, I want to give a shout out to this community and to everybody who has, has worked so hard on on um, making our community healthy and safe and, and uh, spending two years of their lives supporting us through the pandemic. There's incredible people like Vicki Murray, who's, who was in charge of a lot of the pandemic work, um, the doctors, the the, the physicians, the, the healthcare workers, the, the people who work in the hospital, who work behind the scenes to keep things going. Um, I don't know what we would do without them. And I am so very, very appreciative to have the support 
but I'm really appreciative of this community. Uh, we've had our struggles, as I said, but it was all together. We kept strong together. And there were times when we felt it would never end, and there were times when we thought this can't go on forever. And I don't know how you're feeling, but it seems to me like the past two years went by and an eye blink all of a sudden, because now we're seeing people coming out. I'm seeing Polly. He doesn't have a mask on. He's beautiful. You know, I've seen people, and it, and it kind of feels strange, but we have to get past this. We have to get past all of our fears and worries, uh, wear our masks, do what we're being told, but embrace some of the changes that are coming up. I know it's going to be hard. It might be challenging for some of us, but changes on the horizon, and we deserve it, and we worked hard, and we're an amazing community. Time to get to the news. And welcome back, everyone. We are on to the next uh, portion of our show. And this is something I think that's going to resonate with a lot of you because we're hearing so much about what's happening in Ukraine to the families, to the children. It's, it's unbearable seeing what's happening. Um, you know, they're, they're looking at over 900,000 people, mainly women and children and seniors who have evacuated the country and uh, a lot are arriving in Poland, and there are, are massive human um, uh, human activities happening right now to gather things and, and to collect items to send over to them. And I'm really proud to have on our show our guest is Irina, Irina Solok-Feigol, who is a parishioner at the Holy Protection of the Mother of God Ukrainian Catholic Church in Guelph. And their community is gathering things to ship over to assist the families and the refugees. Irene, it's so good to have you on the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. So I would love if you could uh, tell us what you're doing at your parish and what items you're collecting. And and just generally, why did you start doing this? So thank you. Uh, uh, We have... um when we heard about the outrageous war and the aggression against Ukrainian people, we were all shocked, uh, the same as the, the world, and could not believe that this is happening. And most of us have connection to Ukraine because m- many of us are either immigrants, first generation like myself, or or people who came here still remembering the the horrors of the Second World War, and every and the Soviet occupation during the Soviet regime. So everyone has been absolutely uh, shocked by what's mm-hmm. happening and wanted to help and trying to think what can we do being so far away and feeling so helpless so one of our parishioners who still has connections in poland because there is a ukrainian uh, uh, community in poland as well he was thinking you know what people are escaping to poland and we know that people who are leaving are all uh, women with children and uh, they just leave with a few things on their person and that's it and just literally uh, having nothing and we thought okay what can, what can we do and um, his family um, his name is um, Daniel um, 
I'm sorry, his last name is escaping me right okay. now. <laughs> but uh, um, Dobransky, his last name is Dobransky. And his family reached out to uh, actual refugees mm-hmm. and was asking, and what do you need? And they said, we just need clothing for our kids. We need some diapers. We need some formula. Uh, we would really appreciate a few, a few uh, energy bars so we can keep ourselves. And that's what we um, reached out to community. And within literally 24 hours we had so much that people being absolutely generous and uh, those were the items that we collected that that's what we focused on on providing and, and strollers and some sleeping cots and uh, because of connections that we did have in Poland we were able to um pack these huge eight pallets and in the beginning uh, we really thought okay we're shipping stuff to Poland there's some room in other shipments which is going to put stuff in there. We did not anticipate that we'll be sending pallets of things. So we have packed eight pallets. We're very grateful for to Lot, which is a Polish uh, airline that accepted our transfer. And, um, and at this point, we're actually not collecting because there's so much that we are not able to store it. And also, we're closely working with people on the other side and them communicating what they actually need. So we don't want to be sending things that they do not need. And if they and we have about 50 more pallets of the same thing. So for now, we're pausing your collection and we're inviting everybody to uh, to look up our fa- uh, Facebook um uh, page because we have a lot of things and, and um, very reputable links to donations mm-hmm. where you could support. And we just want to say we're so grateful to community in Canada, to Guelph, to Kitchener, all around us in, in Toronto for for amazing, amazing support, uh, outpouring support that's coming every day. Mm-hmm. We're so grateful. So you you were really surprised at the outpouring of, of donations and, and money and love from your community. Absolutely. That was, uh, we were thinking, well, we'll get a few things here and there and we'll purchase things. We have not anticipated that people would be just coming in droves and, and you know, Facebook <laughs> goes really, really fast. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly mommy's groups are connecting and all kinds of groups are connecting and they're just saying, what can we do? What, how can we help? What, what can we, any, anything at all? And people are trying to, uh, and schools are have started to uh, to make collections, and then different churches reached out to us, and we're and we're just so grateful. Absolutely, absolutely, and could not expect that that would be the outcome. So, do you think there will be another shipment of of goods being sent over in the near future? Yes. <laughs> We will be shipping uh, because we do have all these things. So we'll mm-hmm. be sh- we're planning to ship this Friday. We're also planning to ship the rest of uh, the items, and we're just collaborating with the best way of with different shipping companies and uh, uh, airline companies. What is the safest and best way to ship and where to ship? Because we were we shipped to Poland originally. We're also learning that there are refugees that crossed into Romania and Moldova. So we're trying to. Uh, meet the needs of the people. So right now you're trying to set up those networks in other countries then to ship yes. items to. Mm-hmm. How yes. are you doing that? How is it from family members here who have family members there? Like, how do you know where it's going and that it's safe and and getting to the people who need it? Uh, that's an excellent question. So uh, the first one, the first um, 
a shipment was literally because the family members are close by and they uh, they are close by those refugee camps in Poland. And the other ones were just uh, reaching out to diaspora, to the communities in all of those uh, uh, countries. And the Canadian, Ukrainian Canadian Congress is really well involved in uh, in the humanitarian help and action. So we work with them very closely as well. So they're guiding us. So we're making sure that it doesn't disappear. It doesn't go anywhere mm-hmm. that we shouldn't be going. And the people who actually need our support receive it on the other hand, on the other on the other. You know, I yeah. think it's so reassuring for people who are making those donations to go through your your church and your networks because you know, we're hearing a lot about scams already being set up and, you mm-hmm. know, warning people that make sure that you're donating to, to a cause and that is legitimate and that the money and, and the goods are getting to the places and to the people who need them. So I, I, I'm just so so impressed and so proud and inspired by your group for what you're doing. And you've done it so quickly. Like, it's only been days and look what you you've accomplished and what you're going to be sending over. Yeah, well, um, it's really, you. it's the people, it's the people who are doing it. Mm-hmm. We're just put out the uh, a request and it's the people of Canada and people of Guelph that have really embraced, mm-hmm. embraced us and, and, and shared their love for, for, for us here and in Ukraine. You know, it's all about people helping people, right? Yes. When yes. It, what it boils down to. Yeah. But so, do you have um, any members in in your parish who um, have family members being affected now, and that they're hearing from them? Yes, uh, myself. I have family in in Ukraine, and many, as I said, our our communities have very strong con- uh, connections to the motherland, and we're all immigrants in one generation mm-hmm. or the other. So, um, I have. Um, very good. I have family in Kiev, and I have oh. family in Lviv. My family in Kiev have spent many of the days in in metro uh, subway stations waiting things out, and then uh, my male cousins decided that you know what, it's enough is enough, and they they joined the um, it's called Teroborona, which means um, just volunteer of uh, military people who volunteer to pick up arms and to just. My goodness. Uh, uh, so all the men ages 18 to 60 have been invited to take up arms and, and stand guard for their own and protect uh, women and children. So that's what they're doing now. And they're focusing more on on uh, protecting their streets and making sure that, that people mm-hmm. are safe. They are under attack. It's absolutely terrible what is happening. They, the we are not able to talk to them on a regular basis mm-hmm. because the um, connection is not good, and and we're just myself and everyone else is just sitting by the by the phone and trying to call and making sure that they're alive, and we don't know. And uh, and we're in touch uh, my, with my family in Viv that are doing the same thing, and they're just driving and collecting um, donations there as well, and. Just regular people are giving everything mm-hmm. they have to to support their army and giving their food and, and clothing and anything they could possibly gather together, and they support each other and and they're grateful for the support they're receiving from here. But they also are not just sitting and waiting for support. Yes. They're they they work very hard. I think that's what's compelling to to the world is the strength and the bravery of the Ukrainian people and the leadership mm-hmm. of, of yes. your of the leaders of your countries. 
Um, yes. do you ha- can you share with us what you're hearing about what it is like for the, the women and children and, and families that are in the metro stations? Are there facilities for them? Do they have water and food? Or um, you know, are, they, are they being cared for as best as can be? Uh, they are being cared for as best as can be. They went into the subway on the last weekend on Friday, and they stayed there till Monday morning. Um, and they took every everyone went like elderly. Some people who, uh, for they're just the friends of the family. They were t- saying that their uh, mother-in-law has lost her leg because mm. of diabetes, so they were not not able to go into the subway. They stayed and just prayed and hoping that they would not be hurt. Um, the other people, the people in the subway, took their a little bit. They got food and uh, they were sending. We, we were able to face them and some. Some people were uh, sleeping on, like, in the metro station. Mm-hmm. Some kids and and moms were sleeping in the actual uh, subway trains, and they have their little kitty cats and dogs oh and gosh. all of that. And there isn't really excellent facilities for anybody, as you can imagine, uh, for washrooms and things. But people are trying to um, support each other the best they can. They they were able to come out on Monday morning. Um, however, now that the city of Kiev is again is under attack there, to be honest, I haven't spoken to with my with my cousin since yesterday, and I don't know what's going on. You know, it's hard to imagine that this is happening yeah. in such a short time, that yeah. people can live, like, you know, I, we look at our communities, and can you imagine that, you know, within within a day, you're under attack by, by a foreign national, and what would we do, and how would we manage and this speaks to, to the resiliency and the, the bravery of people who are determined that, that Russia is not going to take over their country. And I think that it is a, a wake-up call to all of us to mm-hmm. appreciate and be grateful for everything and, um, and, and the importance of family and helping each other and reaching out. Um, what could we do, though? If, can you, like all the listeners, there are a lot, so many people who are wondering, well, what can I do? And feeling a little bit helpless themselves, mm-hmm. but we all want to do something to help. Could you give us some ideas of, of what you think we could do? Or what, what you know, someone like me, what, what can I do to, to yeah. help? Um, I would direct people to check out our public a Facebook page. It's called Ukrainian Church Guelph Community. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been set up uh, years ago by one of the parishioners. Uh, um, and we are posting there, and there are links to the reputable places where people can donate if they choose to do so. And we, those are, as you say, we're checking them out, and mm-hmm. we're making sure that they're um, no one is going to be scammed, and, and it explains where the money is going to be used for. Um, the other thing I would say, please continue to come and support us as we are uh, in support in prayer and support in our marches and making sure that we share with the rest of the world um, the truth of about what's mm-hmm. happening and that the Ukraine is being attacked. I think there, the misinformation is real and misinformation is real as much as uh, in Canada as it is in, in in some other places. And people sometimes can be misinformed about what is actually happening. And uh, I would say, please come, come to our, support us to our marches. Please learn about the history of Ukraine. Please learn about what is actually happening. And uh, pray for, for, for peace, please. That's what I would ask. 
and and that's an ask I think we all can do. You know, it's mm-hmm. quite surprising when you, you do see the misinformation being spread. Like, I, I just recently read a tweet where someone is actually saying it's just a movie set. This isn't really happening. And, and, mm-hmm. and it's hard to imagine that this misinformation gets out there and then people start believing it and mm-hmm. spread it themselves. And um, I, I, I agree with you. We, we just have to be very careful with what we're reading and what we see and ask questions and become informed mm-hmm. and step up and do something. One question I'm, I'm curious about is, do, do your families hear about, you know, the, the mass groups of people um, gathering together and saying we stand with Ukraine and, and you know, that's happening all over the world? Do, mm-hmm. do, do your families hear about this? Do they take comfort in it? Does it make, does it make them feel like they're not alone? Does it make a difference? It makes a huge difference. It truly is making a difference. And as someone who did grow up in the former Soviet Union and being cut off from the world and not knowing how the world is supporting us was really difficult. And knowing that the world stands behind them and knowing and receiving support, emotional support and financial support and, and support of every kind is very important. That gives that inspires people to, to stand by their values, to it inspires them to live, not to give up, and to keep on fighting for what is right. Um, I will share that last Sunday I was uh, at the rally in Toronto, and right in the midst of a rally, I got a call from my cousin, and he could hear all the oh. people speaking. He said, "Oh, I hear you got you are with us," and it just m- made me cry <laughs> and say, "I know we know we're not alone. We know you have our back. You're with us. The world is with us. Finally." People see what's going on and they see the truth. And I think that's so important because there has been this narrative for years that has been uh, controlled by former Soviet Union leaders and then, and then by Russian imperialists. And, and those, the narrative was really toxic and it was untrue about the role, uh, what they are trying to do and uh, all the nations around them and specifically about Ukraine. So now sharing the truth about Ukraine and its independence and its culture and and long long history before Moscow ever existed. It's so important to be recognized and knowing that Ukrainians do carry um, values that are human human values that are very important. We value human life. We, we cry over every child that is that uh, is injured for every family who who loses their loved ones. And I find that, uh, unfortunately, the leaders of the Russia Federation do not have the same values and and they do not value human life. So we need to speak up for that and and also hope for the the better future. Yeah. Sorry, I am rambling a little bit. (laughs) Oh, you're not. I think it's really important for people to hear and end. Just, just you know, listening to your story, that your your relative heard the the people in Toronto, uh, yeah. and feeling that support, and and that hopefully that message will go through through you know people that he's around and and sharing that, and and that the people in Ukraine know that they're not alone. The rest of the world oh. stands with them. Thank yes, you, absolutely. Yes, thank you so much, and I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to me, talk to me, <laughs> and share this story. I really appreciate it. Thank well, Irina, you. we'd like to to keep in touch with you, and if there is anything that we can do, a big shout out to the communities when you you are ready to uh, send more items over and if you just want to give us one more time the the name of the Facebook page for people who are interested yeah it's Ukrainian Church Guelph Community 
Thank you, Irena. Thank you for all that you were doing. Um, and I wish you and your family as much love and safety and the support of this community to, to all the people in the Ukraine. This community stands with them. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye for now. Goodbye. All right, everyone. That's quite a powerful story. And now it's time to go to break. And we're back. And wow, what a powerful last half hour uh, listening to the situation in Ukraine. But for me, what is really wonderful to hear is what is happening in this community and how people care and the outpouring of of items and donations that are happening in Guelph. And again, if you are looking to make any donations, it is with the... um, with the holy protection of the Mother of God Ukrainian Catholic Church, who are, are gathering items, who have um, thought of checks and uh, making sure that any financial donations will be going to the proper places and be very, very aware and very, very careful of scams that are starting to, to happen in um, getting people to donate. So please go to the official sites like the Red Cross, places that you trust through your churches. Make sure that whatever you're donating gets to the people who need it the most. Um, you know, when I think about all that, all that is happening and, and I'm watching the news constantly and, and watching CNN and, um, and the reporters on the ground and seeing what is actually happening, it's hard to comprehend that these are streets of communities and cities like ours. These are neighborhoods. And I saw a, um, a quick, I guess, TikTok video of citizens of all ages, men, women, seniors, standing in front of Russian trucks and tanks and stopping them just with their arms raised. And the the, um, the Russian trucks didn't know what to do. A soldier came out, was shooting their gun in the air, and these people stood there and didn't move. And I wonder, would I be that strong? Would I be able to stand in front of a Russian truck and tank and a, a soldier shooting their machine gun in the air and stop that happening to my city, to my street. And I like to hope that I would. And I wonder how you feel about that. And and I would love if any uh, people would call in. Um, I think most of you know what the, the call-in lines are, 519-570-2545 or 1-800-570-5715 or star 570 on your cell phone. Um, there's a lot to talk about. And I think that this is a time when we as citizens of the world need to talk to each other, need to kind of take a deep breath and look around and make sure that we're all okay and reach out to others. And in our next segment, we're going to be talking about uh, homelessness in Waterloo Region. And um, it's quite an issue. We've been talking about it for a while. There's homelessness, there's lack of affordable housing. We have some really challenging issues in this community, but there are some great organizations and amazing people stepping up to help and to, um, to, to make things better for people who are experiencing homelessness. So uh, we're going to be heading to the news, and I will be talking to you when we come back. And we're back. And I've just been watching the news, and again, it's talking about the casualties in Ukraine, and they're saying that there have been over 2,000 civilians killed. Unbelievable, unbearable. So now we're going to talk about another issue that that really is, is impacting our community, and that is the issue of homelessness and how many people 
uh, and the increasing homeless uh, um, numbers in our community over the last few years. And statistics show that homelessness has drastically and dramatically increased over the past three years, according to the latest survey that's been conducted by the region. And they um, found in September of 2021, when the survey was done, that there were over 1,085 people who were experiencing severe homelessness in our region. 1,085. And that was about eight months ago. Just to give you perspective, in 2018, there were 333 people classified as homeless. Um, So what's going on? We've got a lot of issues to talk about, and I'm really pleased to be speaking to Wayne Paddock today, who will talk to us about the successes that they're seeing at the British Shelter in Cambridge. They were able to house 150 homeless people since pandemic began, but I'm sure that it's, it's been a challenge. And Wayne, thank you very much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Brenda. Thank you. So, Wayne, talk to us about the challenges of, of housing people, especially in today's uh, rental pricing markets, um, the issues that some of the homeless people have, and, and what, it, what are you doing to um, help everyone? Sure. So, I mean, as you can imagine, uh, a homeless shelter during a pandemic is a little bit chaotic to begin with. Uh, then we try to house people on top of that. So um, our team has done a fantastic job. We've had three um, housing workers at all times during the pandemic whose specific role is to uh, seek out newcomers to the shelter, um, engage them in housing plans, and get them document ready uh, to move out the door. Ultimately, that's our, our end game. Um, so our team has done a, a wonderful job over the last two years um, moving those folks out. And when we look at the, the point, in count, point in time number, like you mentioned, 1,085, that would be almost 1,200 you know, or higher if we hadn't been able to move some of these folks out. Mm-hmm. So the numbers are staggering. The, the housing prices, whether you're buying or renting, uh, are, are through the roof, and that really doesn't help folks in, our, in their situation. And how are you finding landlords to house people? You know what, we're getting there. So a lot of uh, the work that our team does is, is they're searching online for rentals. And, and when they find one, they're always trying to engage new landlords in multiple units. So we have been successful in bringing on some new landlords. I think we're working with about six or seven total now. Um, many of those have multiple units. So I know we got a, a social media post going out shortly looking for more landlords um, you know, that, that we can work with. The nice thing about our team right now is that we don't just house people, but we support them after they're housed. And it's a matter of putting the supports in place, whether it be uh, primary care, whether it be counseling, uh, medical supports, whatever it is, we're not just dropping them on some landlord's doorstep, that we're also supporting them for as long as it takes to make sure they keep their housing. You know, supportive housing is so, so important. Um, You know, in the past... Uh, people who were homeless were kind of just placed anywhere and nobody nobody did any follow-up care. And they they weren't able to succeed or thrive because they didn't have the supports in place and and it was really not not a positive way to, to help homeless people. And I know here in, in our region, we have supportive housing of Waterloo and the House of Friendship, uh, the Y, the, and your organization. There's quite a few organizations now that are embracing the this concept of supportive housing and providing a homeless person with, with a team who is there to help and to, to support them in any way that they can. Um, something that I think I, I'd like you to talk about is people still say, Homeless people, you know, a lot of them don't want to be housed. They would prefer to live on the street. And I'd love if you could give us your your perception of this. 
a lot of the folks that that you know, and and there is folks that you know that they don't fit into the square hole that we're designing for them, right? I think what it has to be is it has to be um, enabling them or empowering them to choose the housing for them. A lot of times we're telling them that we have a housing offer for you, but it's up in this part of, you know, Waterloo when they're a Cambridge person, you know. So a lot of the folks aren't necessarily saying, I don't want to be housed. It's I want to be a part of that housing plan. So when our team works with individuals, it's a matter of where do you want to go? What are you looking for? How can we help you get there? Because I don't think there's anybody, anybody who would choose living on the street Mm -hmm. over a roof over their head. It just has to be as much as possible on their terms. You know, that's really well said, because I think most people don't even consider that someone who is homeless might have have the desire to live within their community still where their supports are where their friends are where their family are mm-hmm. and and they're not a commodity that you can just say okay well you know move 10 miles away or move here these are people and they have the right to live where they want to live and that's the one thing i've noticed with the folks that we service is that they are a community amongst themselves and to displace somebody from that, it'd be like taking one of us from our families and saying, you're going to go live over here, we're going to get you new supports, and we're going to mm-hmm. expect you to be successful. And a lot of times what happens is they end up losing their housing, coming back to where they originated from, and they start all over again. With with supportive housing and the model that you've embraced, um, tell me about the successes you're seeing. Well, you know, as we've mentioned, we have housed 150 people um, in the last almost two years now since the pandemic started. Um, And again, just the number of landlords that we have increased to um, the collective um, collaboration with our partnering agencies like the Food Bank and Mental Health Support through CMHA. And, you know, it's the word is getting out there that when our folks come into shelter, there's going to be an expectation that they work with our housing team. And I would say about 99% of them are willing to engage in those conversations. So it's been very rewarding to watch uh, the team work. Um, they're a younger group right now, but they're so inspiring, and they have been inspired. And that's just kind of oozing out into the rest of the, the rest of the agency. And what are some of the challenges that you've, you've um, been dealing with through the past two years of the pandemic? Well, I, I think, you know, as we know, uh, you know, housing costs are one, um, finding those landlords. But a lot of times with a lot of the uh, agencies and supports shutting their doors, um, you know, a lot of doctor's offices closed, mm-hmm. a lot of um, other housing supports closed, a lot of mental health supports, counseling, we're all, we're all working from home. And that prevented a lot of our folks from staying housed or or us being able to put those supports in place. So that's been a challenge, putting that support network around people. A lot of them don't have the ability to, you know, virtually have an appointment or to virtually meet with their counsellors. So we are setting them up to fail without those supports being in place. And, And that has been a challenge to navigate that during the last two years. And so how have you managed financially to to find rental places for people? Well, a lot of it comes back on the individuals. Um, We have um, folks that are Ontario Disability that we've been able to house, Ontario Works that we've been able to house. And that's where, you know, having landlords who understand um, geared to income rent or, um, you know, going after subsidies themselves so that they can benefit from having um, lower income individuals in their homes. But a lot of times it does come back on the individuals to, 
you know, finance this or, I mean, there has been some rent top-ups that we've been able to be successful at obtaining for individuals, but those are usually time-limited or, you know, they only last for a year and then and then that runs out. So it's really the pockets of funding from the various levels of government that um, indicate or, or allow us to be able to move folks forward who are on support. And is there enough funding? Uh, no. <laughs> there never is, Brenda. No. We know that, right? Yes. I mean, yes. we if we have, you know... Uh, an infinite number of money, amount of money, then there'll still be there'll still be issues. There'll still be you know uh, troubles going after landlords and stuff. So, I mean, I mean, unless we, you know, take on uh, some new high-rise buildings, we're never going to be able to house everybody at the same time. So, and what type of model do you think um, you would like to see? Do you think that if if you were able to buy uh, you know an apartment building that had you know say thirty apartments in it, would that be something that would be a really good model for you? Personally, and I'm not speaking for the bridges at this point, but I personally, I'd love to see um, kind of, um, you know, geared to support housing where, you know, on the first floor could be your addiction housing, on the second floor could be your uh, mental health housing, so that each floor was cohorted based on what the needs of the individuals were, right? So that we're not mm-hmm. throwing everybody into one melting pot and having workers going all over the place, that it's more focused and centralized on the individual needs. And I think that's where you know, we need to focus our shelter system as well as not just putting all of our folks in one building and expecting them to get along mm-hmm. and, and to be successful moving forward. You know, that that is such a, a positive-sounding model because, you know, it's really important to build community hubs around the community that needs it. Yeah. And and putting all those those services in place so that that is there. And it's I'm sure it would be much more cost-efficient to do something like that. I would imagine so. I mean, you're streamlining everything, right? Where as opposed to having your staff spending time going between units or between buildings, they're all focused in one area and they can be much more efficient when... Um, attending to the needs of their clients. And do you have a, a, a waiting list right now? I can For bridges, no. I mean, we, we've always got our door open. We have an overflow program that runs through the winter. Uh, once they're in the doors, and I mean, there's folks as well that we've been able to help that, that aren't even staying here, um, that no, we don't have a wait list. And usually within 24 to 48 hours, our housing team is making connections with individuals to, to get uh, on the path towards permanent housing. You know, that's a, that is such a, a wonderful, positive thing to hear, you know, because we always seem to, to hear the negative that there's, right. there's, instead of saying there's a lot of good happening and there's a lot of people doing good work and, and working with homeless people, I think sometimes we need to hear the good stuff. Yep, no, I agree. And I think, you know, the, the folks who are motivated um, when they come into shelter are housed very quickly and we're able to get them out sometimes within days or weeks. Um, others, it's more of a, a trust factor that we have to build a rapport. Uh, we have to show that the supports are in place. Sometimes they need, uh, you know, birth certificates, documents. Uh, we need to get funding in place. Like mm-hmm. the amount of people that come into shelter that don't even have Ontario Works or Ontario Disability is staggering. So we need to get them some finances before we can get them, you know, going. And with myself being a mental health nurse by trade, a lot of times it's getting them stabilized mentally and, and getting them on medication or getting supports in place so that they can be housed. So, there, yeah, there's a lot of challenges, but the successes are, are happening, and it's been very uh, very exciting to watch. And talk to me about the partnerships that, that your organization has within the community. How does it all work? I think everybody, we have a very good network of agencies that we work with in the community, of not only Cambridge, but the region. Um, you know, going from Lutherwood to Canadian Mental Health, the Food Bank, 
Um, we have a connectivity table, it's called, in the region. Kitchener has one and Cambridge has one where all the agencies get together and they bring the, the toughest cases forward and we brainstorm and we figure out how we're going to best support these individuals. And, you know, it's been really a, it's a, it's a neat collaboration to be a part of because up until about 10 years ago, it was a very mm-hmm. siloed system where everybody looked after what their funding model told them to do and they really didn't venture outside of that. Whereas now we're kind of seeing everybody kind of bleed into everybody else's area to say, hey, maybe we can help with a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So it's taking pressures off other agencies, but also there's this collaborative model that's that's uh, that stemmed from that. Well, we're getting smarter about working together, aren't we? Absolutely. And, and it's so important. Absolutely. Because as we all know, there's such limited funds that are coming from all levels of government and there's never enough. And, and the collaboration and the partnerships not only helps to save money, but it helps to impact a a lot broader group of uh, people who need that help. And it gives us the opportunity as well to make those connections a lot quicker. When you have a resource at one of the other agencies that, well, I can just call Brenda and Brenda can let me know, and, Mm -hmm. and those happen very quickly. As opposed to, you know, we've all left messages for people, they don't get back to us, or we've sent emails or not responded yeah. to. And, you know, sometimes if those connections aren't made, it's, it's very tough to break down those barriers, where when we've made those connections already, they happen very quickly and in a timely manner. And it builds trust. Absolutely. Within the, within the organizations. And that's, and that's one of the frustrating things for our individuals, is they complain about the trust. They complain about other agencies who said they would call them back or would, would help them out and never did. So for us, that is a huge factor, is building that trust. You know, what would you um, like to ask the community? What type of support can this community give you? Do you need items? Do you need furniture? Are there things that the community and, and we as uh, citizens can do to help? We can always use donations, obviously, as, as any nonprofit can. I mean, during the pandemic, it's been uh, very trying at the best of times to to, uh, to keep things moving forward, and we've opened our doors for, for more meals and more individuals, and we're, you know, we're coming to the end of winter, so we'll start to see things kind of pared down. But as we start to program and, and plan for the winter of 2022-2023, um, you know, uh, always donations, but also units and landlords. If there's landlords out there that are willing to have a conversation, I'd be open to chatting with anybody and, and trying to, you know, do my best uh, used car salesman <laughs> job on, on getting them on board. So, What about furniture? Like, are these furnished uh, apartments that you would move someone into? So we, they're not furnished. So a lot of times we do have... Um, you know, donations of furniture. We have limited space for storage, mm-hmm. which is which is full right now, thank goodness. Um, so at this point, yeah, we're not in the need for, for furniture for housing, but, you know, keep an eye on our social media because every once in a while we have a need for, you know, dressers or we have a need for, and then, you know, whatever it is, we put the call out at that time. Um, but right now our storage is full, so, um, you know, we don't. But if, again, if somebody has something they're looking to get rid of, please email me or contact us and we'll, uh, we'll navigate that together. And they would contact you through the bridges? Correct. That's right. You know, that's really nice to hear that you do have an excess of furniture in that. Yeah. Um, because I can't imagine, you know, someone who has been experiencing homelessness is now getting ready to get their own place and they don't even have a face cloth. Yep. And we do. We we have a, a supply here um, at the shelter of you know utensils, cutlery, plates. We keep a good stock here so that whenever somebody moves in, they get like a, a basket, right? Like a, mm-hmm. like a housewarming basket that has those essentials that they haven't had for for a long time. 
you know, so, you know, we, we do send them off and we get them set up and then we provide that, you know, we have a, a, an agreement with the region that we can get new beds for individuals when they move out so they're not getting used beds. And, you know, so it is nice when they go that they have, you know, stuff that's theirs. Hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah. You know, Wayne, I want to thank you and thank the team at, at uh, the Bridges Shelter for all the work you've done. You've been around for quite a while. You've gone through some really challenging times, but you, you know, you just persevered uh, through times of, of lack of funding and, and lack of staff. And, and there's been a lot of things that have happened, which has happened to all our organizations in, in this community. But everybody just hangs on and helps each other out. And I want to thank you for all that you do and your team, and um, boy, you're doing such good work in this community, and, and you've helped 150 homeless people so far, and everyone who comes to your door gets help, so thank you for that. Thanks for having me, Brenda, thanks for taking the time to, to hear our story today. Anytime. Thanks, Wayne. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Well, that's quite a great success story to hear. You know, we just often hear so much about homelessness, and, and it feels like we just can't do anything, and here's a really great success story. 150 people are housed. Time to go for a break. The folks who are motivated um, when they come into shelter are housed very quickly, and we're able to get them out sometimes within days or weeks. Um, others, it's more of a, a trust factor that we have to build a rapport. So, there, yeah, there's a lot of challenges, but the successes are, are happening, and it's been very, uh, very exciting to watch. Successes are happening. What a great statement to hear, because sometimes we need to hear the good words of, of people doing amazing stuff. So, um, you know, I hate to bring us back to reality, but we're going to have to talk about something. And I'm sure we're going to get a few callers in who want to talk about dun, 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 gas prices. Yes, gas prices. Are you sitting down? Now, I, when I drove in this morning, I think I saw about $1.57. And do you, do you do like I do is when you see something, you think, gee, that seems okay because yesterday was $1.58. So that, that's a bargain. You know, it, it's okay. And how we kind of get conditioned to the, the rising cost of things. But I think we're getting to, our, to our, our limit and getting maxed out. And I think it's time to have a talk with Dan McTeague and hear what's going to be happening because, listeners, it's not going to be a bright future for gas prices for all of us. Uh, something that I'd like you to think about because I really want you to call in and, and uh, maybe this could be a bit of a rant uh, because we all feel so hopeless and, and really wonder how we're going to manage. But um, how is this going to affect your summer holiday plans? Were you going to take your, your trailers and drive across Canada? Were you were you going to go on that long drive? Like we're being encouraged now to go and do and and um, tourism is, is hoping for this big boost of people driving all through Canada and spending money here. Can we afford to? Are you going to load up the trailer and the kids and the dogs and the bikes and drive somewhere with the, the price of gas getting to, well, I won't even mention it until Dan talks about it. So um, call me. I want to hear from you. We've been doing a lot of talking, and it's time for you. This is a talk show, and we need people to talk. So the call-in lines, and I know you know them, are 519-570-2545 or 1-800-570-2545. 5715 or star 570 from your cell phone. And um, I, I just don't want to fill my tank up anymore. And I think I, I'm going to just before I go home because things are happening here. We're going to be seeing a big change. And I do have to do another shout out. And I hope this person is listening. And it's someone who you all know and love because you've heard from her for many, many years. And you were she was lovingly called LRT Donna. 
I have known Donna for many, many years. She's she's a, such an important person in this community and does so much for others. So I want to give a shout-out to her because I know her, but I also want to give a shout-out to all the regular callers who call in. I listen to you when, I, when I'm... Uh, driving in my car and, and stewing about the price of gas and you've got some really interesting points to make so don't be afraid to call in we want to hear from you and after you hear from dan i have a feeling the phone lines are going to be sizzling now it's time to head to the news and we are back kitchener today brenda Haller and your guest host and uh, just before the break, I was talking about the gas prices and how it's going to affect us. And the um, the the, um, the person who's coming on the phone next, Dan McTeague, I am sure has quite a lot of information to share with us. And the title of, of one of the articles that was just posted says, Very Painful Gas Price Hikes to Hit Southern Ontario This Week expert warns. Well, guess who that expert is? It's our own Dan McTeague. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the show. Oh, uh, it's a pleasure being here. Perhaps I wish it was on a different topic, like the <laughs> price is dropping, but uh, I'll take it as I can get it. Uh, you know, do you think they ever will? <laughs> I don't know. I There are days where I wonder. It's been a whirlwind now since at least last October, where prices have consistently gone up month by month, an average of ten cents a liter, Brenda. So you know, we're whereas we began this year at a dollar forty, dollar thirty nine, dollar thirty eight a liter here in Kitchener, Waterloo, and Cambridge. You know, we're now pushing and testing a dollar sixty seven point nine tomorrow, and uh, it looks like another three wow. cents on top of that will be a buck seventy by Friday, by the looks of it. Now, why can it go up that quickly in a few days? Uh, well, we're price takers. Uh, the market is really based on replacement costs. So whatever, even though you know, gas stations have you know, product in their tanks that they bought much cheaper, um, the reality is the cost to replace every liter that they're going to buy going forward is more expensive. So prices tend to go up uh, usually two or three days after the market uh, moves. And our market, by the way, is the U.S., New York Mercantile Exchange, and some people call it the New York Harbor, but that's really the spot price for gasoline and for all other kinds of fuels. And uh, we're really price takers, Brenda. We Mm -hmm. also have uh, the situation where um, uh, the Canadian dollar is also a factor. It's not responding to the therapy like it did in the past when oil prices went through the roof because we once were a big oil-producing and oil-exporting country, especially the United States. That just isn't happening this time. And so because we price... You know, all of our goods and commodities, whether they're made here or not, in U.S. terms, a weaker Canadian dollar, which some people think is cool, uh, is actually driving up the price of fuel. And on a day like today, where we're going to 167.9, I can tell you, if uh, if it was 2014 or 2008 when we saw $100 oil here, you know, back then, uh, you'd be saving 17 cents a liter, uh, and that's a big deal. And how much of of the cost of gas is um, government taxation? A lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, we start with the federal government at 14.7, uh, sorry, the provincial government at 14.7. It's a road tax. The federal government has an excise tax of 10 cents a liter. Uh, so right from the get-go, there's 24 cents, uh, 25 cents there. Uh, then you have, um, uh, you know, an HST, which uh, works out to about 18 cents a liter. Uh, and then you have a carbon tax, uh, which is uh, 8.84 cents a liter. By the way, that goes up 
two and a half cents a liter uh, on April 1st. So that's coming up quickly on April Fool's Day. Uh, and then uh, over and above that, uh, you have the weak Canadian dollar. So overall, uh, you know, we're approaching very quickly 50 cents on every liter of gasoline as tax. The rest of it, of course, is oil, which works out to about 84 cents a liter. And uh, the rest is refined costs and uh, the, what's called the retail margin. And that's that really tells you the difference between gas stations. They all pretty much pay the same wholesale price for gasoline. The only difference they have is the last seven or eight cents a liter. And sometimes in the afternoon, they drop those prices two or three cents. That's all they can do. So why do you see uh, gas stations that are not part of the, the big groups, you know, more the independent stations that have gas at a, a lower price? Well, it really depends. Sometimes it, you know, because if they're part of a large volume purchasing, you know, organization, they can get some pretty decent discounts. So I think here of Costco, because I have a membership, um, you know, will offer gasoline usually four or five cents a liter above mm-hmm. cost. But because they can guarantee to the refiner that they're always going to need their, and they're large volume buyers, they get some pretty big discounts in the way that even some of the independents not have the same advantage. At the end of all of this, though, I mean, we all start much from the same wholesale price and then everyone has to sort of figure out, you know, how they're going to manage. In the case of Costco, uh, they don't have to honor uh, a credit card uh, other than their own, which is a, a MasterCard. You show up with a Visa, uh, they won't, they won't, you won't be able to dispense mm-hmm. any fuel. Um, and of course, there's other factors as well, uh, smaller factors as they may be. They don't have the same kind of uh, obligation to honor all credit cards. That saves them as, mu- as much as four cents a liter, a liter on any given purchase. So that's kind of when you'll see that price differentiation because of that? That's part of it. Uh, the other one, of course, is that they're making money elsewhere. A lot of them are making money, um, you know, in, in store. They also have a membership program. So, you know, membership helps them offset. Uh, it's just a different uh, retail, um, you know, uh, approach, uh, which, you know, is different from your normal mom and pop gas station. Uh, you know, when I go to any gas station or I go to a Costco, I have to be prepared to spend an extra 10, 15 minutes sometimes to uh, fill up. And the question is, do I want to? You know, do I have, can I use that 15, 20 or 30 minutes better to do something else rather than wait to save, you know, four cents a liter? Yeah, that's very true. And then if you go into Costco, it costs you $300, so you really haven't saved anything. <laughs> well, let's talk about that because I can tell you, if anything, the fuel prices are going to drive uh, food prices yes. to significant levels. And Brenda, the one that never gets attention but should, uh, diesel, up five cents today, up seven cents tomorrow, up another five cents on Friday. It's going up faster than gasoline. I want to hit on that too, because I don't think people are really um, putting it kind of in sync that diesel prices are going to be just as difficult for inflation as gas prices. They are. And when you think about it, for all of some of us who don't have to worry about, you know, a vehicle uh, or maybe have, uh, you know, alternative sources of transportation, public transport, an uh, electric vehicle, a scooter, a bike, um, you still have to consider that everything we move uh, in this country is either done by truck, mm-hmm. by rail, to a lesser extent, aviation. But even farmers, I just finished mm-hmm. doing an interview in Saskatchewan, you know, the, uh, the product, nitrogen, urea, both derived from oil and gas, are in short supply and the price is going through the roof. Um, anyway, you look at this, uh, I don't see a scenario where we're not going to be seeing a year-over-year rollover increase in price of about a third. Um, I just bought uh, diapers for my grandson from the local Walmart. Uh, I went there two months ago. Now he's gone up a size, and uh, it was uh, it was $29 for a pack. It's now $39. And I thought, wow. wow. It's just like, 
and that's Walmart. So mm-hmm. there is an effect, uh, not everything, but I think for a lot of stuff, we haven't seen the other shoe drop. And it isn't just the increase in price. It's also things like wheat and other products, which are going to be sanctioned and sealed off uh, to prevent Russia from making any money uh, on its war uh, against Ukraine. So get ready, fasten your seatbelts. It's going to get very expensive. We're almost in a perfect storm. I think we're in it. Yeah. And uh, for those of us who've watched this like a hawk for the past 30 years and predicted gas prices and, of course, policies around that when I was a, in another job as a member of Parliament, Liberal mm-hmm. Party, um, I always sort of you know, countered the work on energy with foreign affairs, with, you know, work in the grocery uh, industry to the extent that, you know, concentration and other issues were were driving prices. Uh, I don't need to say locally with, uh, you know, Frito-Lay having uh, Mm -hmm. a challenge with with Lawboss. You're going to see a lot more of that. And uh, unfortunately, um, I think it's kind of one of the things you have to follow through that, you know, Canada... Canada's benefits are its resources, its ability to get it to market Mm -hmm. and to produce it responsibly. And I think we've lost sight of that uh, generally over the past 10 years. You know, um, when you were hearing now how Russia has been infiltrating a lot of social media and there's always been talk about how much Russian money was used to stop our oil and gas production and, and a lot of that. What are your thoughts on that? I don't know if the connection's been made to Canadian activism, but there's mm-hmm. no doubt that Canadian, uh, you know, Canada's resource sector has been the target, not just oil and gas, but also forestry uh, of funded organizations from abroad. Uh, now, normally we're a tolerant country, but the extent to which you have been able to um, move, uh, you know, earth and mountain to stop pipelines from being built, such that the taxpayer now has a $20 billion debt on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, that we shut down the Energies Pipeline, that we shut down the Northern Gateway Pipelines. These are pipelines that would have allowed us to sell oil to the rest of the world mm-hmm. and to offset any decrease uh, or at least push back on Vladimir Putin's uh, design to use uh, the fact that he's got Europe where he wants them, basically on their knees, needing his natural gas and to a lesser extent oil. Canada could have uh, easily served as a, uh, as a cushion. Uh, as an alternative. Why? Well, we can ramp up production to the 10 million barrels that uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia has in a given moment. It's just we don't have the takeaway capacity or infrastructure. So I think all of this, you know, perhaps as a silver lining and that we're going to have to have a very serious discussion. It's all been about climate change and green goals and something called ESG, environmental, social and governance goals, mm-hmm. where we say no more money for fossil fuels, no more money for uh, hydrocarbons, no more money for natural gas. And we have municipalities going around saying, yeah, we can do without natural gas plants. All these things, I think now reality is really starting to bite. And mm-hmm. if the politicians, in which of which I was for 18 years, aren't prepared to listen to that, I think consumers are going to start to, residents are going to start to take matters yeah. towards you know replacing uh, and displacing those who are not aware of the fact that uh, not just affordability, but security, global security, ranks much higher than anything else right now. Let's get our priorities right. I think is what we're going to hear. But you've always been talking about that and raising the alarm bells, Dan. Well, yes, Did but you get that's tired? okay. Uh, <laughs> am I tired? No, I'm 59, so I think i got a couple of years left. You're just a me, young but, lad. Uh, <laughs> apparently, yeah, Brenda. <laughs> no, I, look, I, I think this is not about winning a point. It's, mm-hmm. it's about recognizing that we probably had it really good. You know, when Paul Martin, Jean Chrétien, and uh, uh, Stephen Harper and, you know, various leaders were successful in getting Canada's financial house in order, and it took a lot of pain to do that, 
we've had 10 to 15 years of unprecedented good times. Yes. Not perfect, but good times. And I think we've lost sight of uh, what it takes to make this country, you know, you know, viable. I think we understand our responsibilities in terms of uh, the environment uh, and to each other and our social and labor obligations. But I think we've lost something along the way, and that's uh, we can't throw the baby out of the bathwater. And we've done that with uh, denigrating our oil and gas sector. And as 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 counter as that sounds uh, or would have sounded four months ago. I can tell you, Brenda, I'm, I've got a lot more people uh, now saying the, pretty much the same thing. We've got to get back to basics here, and, and that includes, uh, you know, reinforcing our energy sector. It's important for Canada. It's important for the world. Dan, how soon would it, would Canada be able to ramp up its oil and gas supply? It wouldn't be hard to get the supply. Uh, you know, if you look at some of the, you know, the new SAGD technology that uh, doesn't use, you know, you see these oil uh, these oil sands projects where they're big, huge open pits, that's, they don't do it that way to the extent that they did before. Mm. Um, we have the ability to ramp up, ramp down a little bit, but mostly ramp up at $10, $15 a barrel. Um, and we could easily double over the period of a year, maybe, our production if we had to. Um, you know, there are a lot of projects that are, you know, that are idle. Um, but, you know, that would require regulations and a number of other factors. Our biggest obstacle is that there is no, I think they call it takeaway capacity, and that's the ability to get it to market. We don't have uh, a pipeline that can take it to the Atlantic or take it to the Pacific, uh, and uh, that's the real stumbling block. Um, there's only so much rail and trucking of yeah. oil, and uh, and there's only so much natural gas you can get there. But examples of hydro, you know, of, of um uh, you know, of uh, violence against a natural gas pipeline that uh, could provide a lot more LNG uh, on the coastal gas link. That's it's kind of a scary situation mm-hmm. that's that's emerging, and it's uh, someone's got to resolve this problem because it's not a culture war; it's a it's a war of reality. You know, when you say it's going to be a period of a year, we need that done now. Yeah, well, <laughs> mm-hmm. you do need it now, mm-hmm. and no one has it now. But uh, you know, maybe it's time for our friends in Ottawa and Washington uh, and in Europe to finally say, listen, natural gas is an important product. Oil is an important product. We may not like it, but for yeah. to get us where we want to be, you know, we can't throw, you know, we can't uh, do this, what we've been doing, which is to, you know, look, uh, not look before we leap. And uh, I guess at this stage, um, a year may sound like a long time, but mm-hmm. uh, knowing that that would be there would actually calm the markets. Mm-hmm. Knowing that Canada could produce an extra million barrels would send a message to the markets, the likes of which we have never seen before, in which, uh, you know, uh, you know, any sanctions on Vladimir Putin would have that much more strength, that much more, that, you know, that much more teeth. But it would also say the world Canada is willing to ramp up. Um, and we have the spare capacity. We have the ability to do this. Uh, I don't think the same can be said for Venezuela or Saudi Arabia, the only two other nations that have larger reserves than us when it comes to oil. So here, who here in Canada has to give out that message? Oh, I think it comes to the Prime Minister. Uh, I mean, I think he, you know, the, the, and I, I'm hopeful. I, I, I've been very critical of him, but, you know, I put out a tweet last week where I said four things need to happen. We need to, first of all, no more crude products in Canada. Uh, second of all, don't allow Russian vessels into Canadian waters delivering oil, especially the U.S., mm-hmm. which uh, is, you know, since killing of Keystone XL pipeline, which was a ridiculous decision by the Biden administration on its first day of, in office uh, to appease a certain constituency, effectively uh, forced Americans then to buy their oil from Russia, which they've been doing. So 
on both those, the uh, the leader, the Prime Minister, acted. And so kudos to him for doing that, uh, and Chrystia Freeland as well, who I think has done very well in this whole process. Uh, the final two, I think, are much more difficult, and that's uh, imposing a, under whatever, whatever measure is required uh, a national strategy towards a east-west pipeline regardless of uh, provincial, uh, you know, complaints or activism. And if there are activists out there, then I think we have to treat them as harshly as we would others who, uh, as we saw in Ottawa and places like that. So I think the Prime Minister still has a, a big selling job to do. But I think Canadians are willing to listen because I think Canadians are looking and saying, I can't afford to eat mm-hmm. and I can't afford to heat at the same time. And we're leaving a lot of people out of, uh, out of this, this discussion uh, by virtue of the fact, through no fault of their own, energy prices uh, are going through the roof in a country that happens to be among the harshest in terms of climate in the world. You know, it's hard for all of us to understand. There's so much to this. But Dan, how did you get into just, this is your passion and this is, this is, you know, what you believe in. How did, how did you get into this role? And we're so grateful that you have. Well, no, it it came really as a result of um, a few uh, small independent gas retailers uh, being put out of business by big, large players in the early 90s in my riding, and uh, they were basically very efficient, very effective, but their supplier, who happened to have the same brand, uh, was opening up across the street and undercutting them uh, by offering gasoline much cheaper than what they were buying at wholesale. So I said that should have been wrong, that should have been pointed out, and um, that kind of behavior, destroying small independent business in this country is unacceptable. It's from that point that I began to learn a little bit more about the energy sector, and then um, it's kind of that whole point that I think uh, many of us would have hoped for that, you know, that uh, we would wind up in a situation where, you know, prices are that we pay for fuel are accountable and uh, prices that we pay for pretty much everything else is, uh, is transparent. And uh, increasingly, that's become a question of me going after the oil industry, now having to prevent the oil industry from being destroyed, because that's apparently the agenda of some, of some out there who believe we can wish away uh, hydrocarbons. We can't, by the way. Um, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, you can't even build an electric vehicle without, uh, you know, the polymers, the resins, the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the tires, uh, the uh, the paints, all of these things come from oil. One way or another, I don't think it's something we can give up. We can do better at what we're doing, but uh, I don't think we can uh, we can afford to say, let's kill this industry and uh, and move on, because it has, as we're seeing today, uh, absolutely devastating consequences if we go at it too quickly or without, uh, you know, without due regard to, uh, you know, uh, an orderly transition away from it. You know, it's pretty scary to think about the price of gas, but also the impact on on just the supply chain, the cost of goods, uh, of food. You know, everybody's now, when you go the, to uh, buy some food, you're looking at the price thing. What happened? And you're saying this, there's more to come. Like we're going to be looking at higher inflation, higher food prices, because of the, the the increase in gas and diesel affecting the the distribution networks, yeah, it, it is, and you know the sanctions on on uh, on Russian wheat and other products um, effectively removes uh, a large uh, player in terms of uh, supply, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it can't be made up quickly. So we were dealing with these problems well before Russia decided to attack Ukraine. But yeah. you know, my firm belief is that. Uh, Russia would not have done what it did in Ukraine if it didn't believe that it had uh, Europe and, uh, to a larger extent, uh, you know, OECD nations and, and you know, G7 where it wanted. Uh, the uh, the fact is uh, they calculated that we needed their oil badly, so bad that we wouldn't uh, push back on Ukraine. Thankfully, we're doing that. 
but the pain has to be felt by all. And it's a minor, it's a minor pain compared to what those poor people are yeah. uh, enduring in, in Ukraine today. So I'll, like everyone else, uh, we'll grin and bear it uh, because mm-hmm. the alternative is not acceptable. But Canada needs to lead here. And it's what an opportunity for a great nation like ours. And we can do it. And thank you, Dan, for your leadership. And don't stop. We're, we're here. <laughs> don't stop. We're listening and, and we're grumbling. But boy, thank you so much for, for uh, doing this for all of us. We sincerely appreciate I, it. Appreciate the encouragement. Thanks, Brenda. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Dan. Bye-bye. All right, everyone. And now we're up for a break. Well, we're price takers. Uh, the market is really based on replacement costs. So whatever, even though you know, gas stations have you know, product in their tanks that they bought much cheaper, um, the reality is the cost to replace every liter that they're going to buy going forward is more expensive. So prices tend to go up uh, usually two or three days after the market uh, moves. All right, everyone. So are you ready for a $1.67 per liter gas price by the end of this week? I haven't seen anybody call in, so I guess you're okay with that. Nobody's upset. You're okay with paying a $1.67 per liter? I think what I learned from Dan was uh, was shocking that we're paying almost 50 cents a liter for um, all levels of uh, government taxation. 50 cents. That's a lot of money on a tank of gas. And you know, the last time I filled up with gas, I, I was getting, I have a, a larger, I have a van, and it used to be about $60, then it was 70 then 80 and I was now close to almost $90, and I shudder to think of what it's going to cost soon. It'll be over the $100 mark. And that really makes you think twice now about going anywhere, driving, or, or you know, taking a vacation, because if the cost of gas and the cost of getting to places is going to be that high, um, are we going to travel? Are we going to leave our homes? Or are we going to stay and sit on our decks and, and uh, think about what's happening th- around the world and the impact it's having on us? Uh, we've got a caller in, Randy. We've got about half a minute. Let's hear you. Okay. I'm just uh, saying, like, uh, okay, there's a problem over in Russia. And as soon as something happens, our gas prices go up. Do we not have enough gas and oil here in our country mm-hmm. to supply ourselves forever so we should shut off the valves and we should just take care of ourselves and the prices should go back down to about 40 cents well, why does something over in russia affect us over here it doesn't make sense to me well, you know dan or dan addressed that randy and and there's a lot of politics to it and thank you so much for your call uh, I feel I feel the same frustration. So now we got to head into news and, and let's hear what's going on in the world. And good afternoon, everyone. It's a beautiful day out there. Are you out walking? Are you just getting some fresh air and some sunshine? Because we certainly have been waiting for it. I think there might be snow in the forecast, but let's not talk about that. It's sunny and it's a beautiful day today. So... I wanted to talk about the impact on the pandemic on children's mental health, but also how do we talk to our kids about the war and what is happening in the Ukraine? These are topics that, you know, I as a parent never thought I'd have to be talking to my child about. And um, I don't know if I would know how to start. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old grandson, and the four-year-old 
it does see snippets of the news and and you know we try to quickly change things but but he's seen things on television that are quite frightening and worrisome to him and i'm i'm hoping that i i can am talking to him the right way and luckily we have Helen Fishburn who is the executive director of the Canadian Mental Health Association of Waterloo Region on on the show with us today to give us some some tips and to talk to us about how do we talk to our kids welcome Helen Hi, Brenda. Thanks so much. Always great to be with you and your team there. Well, it's wonderful to have you because these are really challenging times and we, we need the support of, of CMHA and, and your team. So how do I talk to my grandson, my four-year-old, about the war and what's happening in the Ukraine? How do we talk to our children and our teenagers? Oh, it's a really important uh, question, and I was—I was—you couldn't see me, but I was nodding when you were talking about uh, your grandson and even the age that your grandson is at. Of course, they know what's happening in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, they pick up cues from us. They pick up snippets when we have the radio on in the car. You know, if the, if the CNN is on in the background and the kids are around, it's amazing what our kids can pick up, even little ones. Obviously, the older kids. Uh, through their own social media networks. Uh, And, you know, kids very young these days have their own phones and they're on Instagram and TikTok. There is a lot of information Mm -hmm. out there. And it's really important to be able to talk to our kids about it because it's really pain on top of pain Mm -hmm. that they have experienced for the past two years. Mm -hmm. So first I would suggest, you know, we have to always be age-appropriate, right? And and not, uh, it's really important to be honest and to be, frank with our kids about what's happening in the world, but we want to match that to their age. If your kids are under seven, really keep the detail of that information to a minimum. You know, it's important to explain and acknowledge that there is a conflict. Uh, It's far away. We're feeling sad about it, but it doesn't impact our safety and our routines here and now, which is really what kids, Mm -hmm. little kids, just need to know, right? That yes, this is happening and we feel sad about it, but you're fine, you're safe here, and um, it, and it's really reassuring them and keeping them grounded here, especially after the last two years where so many of our dis, you know routines have been disrupted. You know, that's so true. Our, our children have really gone through a lot, and when you look at children, I think the statistics are basically children under two have never known anything but wearing masks and, and right. seeing people walking around with masks. And there's also a psychological impact to children on, on just how they look at people's faces. And, and we're going to be dealing with that and talking about that as you know as time goes on. But then you look at a four-year-old and five-year-olds, and they're in school and maybe for the first time, and it's that's always right. a mask. Yeah. And and you just wonder what is the so the mental health impact on that for children? You're, you're right. It's a very different experience uh, for them, and a, and a di- very different way to experience life. Right, just mm-hmm. in terms of their social interactions and the way they see the world, uh, which really have been through that mask. So. Um, we're going to have to help them unpack all that, make sense of it, understand it. And that's why these conversations, keeping them open, keeping it active. Um, you know, if we if we talk about Ukraine, if we talk about COVID, those are not kind of one and done conversations. Mm-hmm. They're conversations that we just keep open and active and regularly check in with our kids. Uh, I had talked about some advice for the little kids, but it gets a bit more complicated if your kids are older Mm -hmm. because they are absorbing that information and they're actively involved and engaged in it either through their social media channels at school with their peer group. And so with that older age group, you really want to 
be more active in that conversation with them, help them understand uh, what's happening, again, age-appropriate, but really to explain ab- about the conflict. You know, you could even show Ukraine on a map, help them get kind of a, a sense of what that means, practically speaking. But also, um, you know, acknowledge and validate the sadness that they feel on top of how tough it's been. Like, we all need to acknowledge that, right? That, mm-hmm. To be honest, Brenda, that's been one of the silver linings of this pandemic is the mental health conversations have been so much more open and transparent, and there is a lot of strength in people's sharing of their vulnerability. And at a time like this, we really want to come together in that pain and vulnerability to support each other, but also to support our kids. Um, I think the other piece of this that we can do is encourage our kids uh, to be socially active. You know, are there ways that they could raise some funds, you know, uh, for the people of Ukraine? There's a lot of kids out there with some amazing ideas. You can put a sign up in your your front window just showing your support for the Mm -hmm. people of Ukraine. You can say a prayer at night or over the family table. Uh, Like there are so many ways that you can continue to encourage our kids, even through these difficult moments, to make the best of it, to be a kind, compassionate, and caring person. Uh, And all of those messages are so, so important as well. What are the challenges that you're seeing involving teenagers right now? Well, it's been a really uh, tough couple of years, and there's a cumulative impact, Mm -hmm. definitely, that we're seeing with the older kids, right? As you said, you know, through the last couple of years and the masks and the disruption, uh, it's been really hard. And our kids need uh, routines. They need their peer group. They need uh, all the stimulation that they get through school to be able to meet their developmental milestones. So all of those things and losing some of those things or having the inconsistency has been incredibly hard for them uh, as they have tried to, you know, be normal kids and normal teenagers and express themselves. So, you know, we certainly have seen um, an increase in things like disordered eating, uh, angry outbursts. Uh, We've seen quite a significant increase in the uptick of alcohol and cannabis use. Uh, Then that get then paired with things like uh, psychotic episodes, which we've seen a really significant uh, spike in, all of those issues are fueled by an increase in anxiety, an increase in social isolation, and an increase in that disconnect, if you will, from some of the really foundational things that keep people grounded, Mm -hmm. like having a calm, stable, secure home life, Mm -hmm. like having the consistency in a school routine, like having extracurricular activities where it's, whether it's dance class or piano class or a hockey team, all of those things, uh, when they're disrupted, and you add on the stress and anxiety, it really impacts our kids at a, at a really deep level. You know, I often think about, you know, our children have been, been socially isolated and just using social media for the past two years and almost worry for them when they are kind of like, like butterflies coming out of their cocoon and, and, and interacting more and having maybe dealings with, with other um, uh teenagers that is is stressful and they haven't ha- had those those opportunities to learn how to deal with things like that and the emotional worries that come with that and bullying and all of it on a face-to-face basis instead of through social media. Absolutely. Uh, you're absolutely right. They're, they're more at risk because of all of the uncertainty and the inconsistencies. We also know the kids are tremendously resilient. 
Uh, and in fact, there's a lot that we can learn from our kids in terms of their perspective, their attitudes, uh, and their willingness just to keep going and keep learning and keep trying. And all of our kids are different. All of us are different, mm-hmm. right? Everyone has um, different ways of coping, and they take on uh, stress very differently. It manifests, manifests itself very differently. So it's really important for parents. You know your your child best. Keep your eyes on your child. What are you? What are the concerns that you're seeing? Are they just a short-term blip, like your child is in a bit of a funk and needs, you know, needs some some support? You need to do some things differently or adjust something, or if that funk turns into something that is more concerning, like it's actually now a pattern of behavior, and you're really concerned that you're seeing that really start to impact your child's ability to function in the world. They don't want to go out mm-hmm. anymore. They don't want to do the things that they normally love to do. Um, you're seeing them really withdraw, or conversely, you're really seeing them get emotionally reactive uh, inappropriately. So those are the kinds of things that we look for, and we ask parents to keep their eyes on. And in those moments, it's really important to reach out, uh, talk to somebody that you can get some support through the school board. We have some amazing counseling uh, agencies here in Waterloo Region. Uh, You can call us at here 24 7 uh, there's all kinds of options uh, that you can reach out and find some support because what we want to do is really help that child work through that period and find some new tools and new skills to cope so that that pattern doesn't then become entrenched. So, Helen, what do you say to the parents who are struggling with, with coming out of their homes and, and going into social situations after so many years of, of being told we shouldn't stay away, you know, stranger danger and all of this, even as adults, we're really affected by this. Oh, very much. And, um, you know, it's, it's parents have had a, an incredibly challenging job, right? They have, a, first of all, experienced this pandemic themselves. Second of all, uh, experienced it for their children and been concerned about their children. Third, many are juggling work-life balance, right? So yes. they're, they're, they're now working from home or they've had to work from home and their kids have been at home with online schooling. And you see all those images of parents trying and mm-hmm. working so hard, sitting at the kitchen table with their work computer while their child's there learning. And, you know, you've got aging parents in the background who we've all been very worried about as well. It has been a tremendous burden and a tremendous load that we've been carrying as parents. Uh, for a very long time. It's been exhausting. It it has. Yes, it has. So it's important, again, to acknowledge that, recognize that. And again, everybody copes with that different, Brenda. You know, what what you might find relaxing Mm -hmm. and rejuvenating is different than what I do. Uh, But for each of us, it's so important to add whatever works for us to add more of it. Um, And I always remind people, so just our level of resilience our, just our general level of resilience was never designed for a, a two-year pandemic, mm-hmm. plus, 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 all the additional things we've had on top of that. So our resilience ran out a long time ago. Mm-hmm. What we need to do is to add some new skills, new tools, new things into our lives 
which really addressed the incredibly extraordinary circumstances we're living in. So whether that means that you're seeing a therapist, whether that meaning means you're you're attending a webinar program, whether that means that you're you're going to um, do some more mindfulness, you've got an exercise program, whatever it is that brings you joy which keeps you grounded and which helps you manage with the extraordinary amount of stress that we've got, those are the things that you need to keep doing more and more and more so that you can stay grounded, not only for yourself, but for your kids. That's a wonderful message, Helen. And, and if people are, are, are needing to, to uh, reach out, how do you suggest they contact you? Well, we make that really easy for the people who live in, in Waterloo, Wellington. Um, our Here 24-7 service is literally here 24-7. We hear from parents all the time who are worried about their kids. Mm-hmm. We get calls in the middle of the night because moms and dads can't sleep and they're worried about their oh, kids. Oh, my goodness. And we welcome those calls because there are sometimes many concrete and practical things that we can suggest to do or to try. And sometimes parents aren't sure, is this something I should worry about or not worry about? And we can help sort that out as well, as well as connect uh, parents and kids to available care. Even though we have waiting lists in our system, there are also uh, lots of opportunities for care. So call us at HERE 24-7, which is one eight four four here 247 You can go onto our website, here247.ca. We also have a really helpful website called HERE for Help, here the number for help.ca, with all kinds of resources available for parents as they're supporting their kids and working through it themselves. Uh, and sometimes people just want to go to a website and get some resources mm-hmm. uh, for information as well. Well, Helen, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Um, a lot of us are going to be needing this help as time goes on, and it's so reassuring to know that the, the Canadian Mental Health Association of Waterloo Region is here to help us out. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Brenda. Much appreciated. Take care. Thank you. And we now have John on the line. John? How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Now, I'm sorry. I, I don't know what your name is. Oh, my name I, is your first show. I am Brenda Halloran, and uh, this is my Brenda very Halloran. first time as a talk show host, John. Wow. Yeah, you're my that second caller. That really, uh, <laughs> fun thing for you to be doing for the first time. Yes. Anyways, uh, I was born in Kitchener. And I'm 65. I'm retired since I was 55, because that was back when they were going Freedom 55. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I remember uh, as a young fellow going home from public school at Brighton that uh, some guy named John F. Kennedy was shot. Oh, yes. I didn't know who he was. Yeah. I mean, you know, I just heard the name. and My parents let me watch TV, and mm-hmm. I was turned on the TV to watch the Beverly Hillbillies, I think. <laughs> and instead, I see this guy yeah. in a convertible, and it was really something I'd never thought I'd ever see on TV. Mm-hmm. He, you know what happened to him? Man. I sure do. Yes. Yeah, and well, we saw know, that I, live. It, it happened. Kind now of, they make fun yeah. of that sort of thing in the U.S. Say eh? mm. they say it's ricocheted bullets and all that. But what I wanted to say is, um, your kids are kids. And they react the way you react. Mm-hmm. Good point. So if you're watching the local news and your reaction is negative, theirs will be maybe positive because kids tend to do the opposite of a lot of parents because they don't really understand the nature of death. Like I watch Russian TV sometimes. 
because uh, that's the only way those people get any information because they don't have all the internet and all that stuff like we do here. And uh, Putin was on the other day, and he said something that was taken out of context, maybe. Mm -hmm. He said, all Ukrainians must die. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody dies, right? But right now, when he says that, people tend to overreact to what he's saying because of what's happening in the country of Ukraine. Now, this is a nuclear-powered country, Russia, right? It sure is, yeah. If he ever withdraws all his troops, he had another one of those nuclear meltdowns. I think we all have to stop uh, all this news-watching. Because we don't watch it the way it should be watched. I know. You know what? I'm, I'm up against the time, and I really appreciate your call. And um, we just all have to make sure we're taking care of each other. Thank you so much for calling in. And now it's time for our break. You know, need some, some support. You need to do some things differently or adjust something. Or if that funk turns into something that is more concerning, like it's actually now a pattern of behavior, and you're really concerned that you're seeing that really start to impact your child's ability to function in the world. They don't want to go out Mm -hmm. anymore. They don't want to do the things that they normally love to do. Um, You're seeing them really withdraw, or conversely, you're really seeing them get emotionally reactive uh, inappropriately. Hi, Brenda Halloran here, and, and I've really thought a lot about what Helen was speaking to us our last uh, um, call, our, uh, our last guest uh, call-in, sorry. And for me, it's all, uh, you know, who ever thought, especially for us baby boomers, that in our lifetime, we would be talking to our grandchildren about the effects of war, and that they're seeing war happening live, on-air bombings and, and horrific images happening on air we this is just such a different stage of of the world and and with social media the way it is and that you know there are teenagers who might be experiencing some concerns about leaving the home and and socializing and what images that they are seeing and the fears that they might be holding within them that this could be happening to us soon or what what the state of the world is because they're inheriting a lot of this um and I, i just encourage all of us to really look at our family around us and our friends around us and talk to each other and check in with our kids, especially our teenage kids, check in with them and ask them what they're seeing and how they're being impacted by it. You know, when my little four-year-old grandson sees things and I can see his face and, you know, it seems to be take forever to, to change the channel. And I have talked to him about that and his mom and dad are. And we're trying to just, as Helen, as Helen had said, just reassure, uh, make sure that they feel safe, that it's not happening here. It's not going to happen to their home. And make sure that, that they feel secure, safe and secure, and that our teenagers do. But you know what? We all need to be checking in with each other because... It is frightening to see what's happening. It's happening fast and escalating fast. I never thought I'd be watching a war on live TV. And um, I don't know how you're feeling, but it's given me pause to think about a lot of things in life and to be grateful and to uh, hug my loved ones close. And on that note, we're heading into news. Well, that's 
that's a good beat to listen to, and I'm excited to be speaking to a couple of people in the next sec- sector of our talk show on Kitchener today. I'm Brenda Halloran. So what's been happening to business, local business during this pandemic? How have they been impacted? How have they survived? What is what has been their biggest challenges? And I think it's, um, you know, for me, talking to small businesses and to startups is kind of part of a, a part of my passion. And I don't think we're hearing enough about what our local business people have gone through and what their challenges are. And I think we forget about that. You know, I can't imagine two years ago when you first started a business, that boom, the pandemic hit, you had to shut down, but somehow you had to stay afloat because that was your source of income. And how much... How much uh, sleep you lost. On my show today is Christine Daynard, and she is the owner of the Buzz Tour Company. She's a phenomenal entrepreneur, and I've been following her for quite a while uh, because she's been really open and honest on her Instagram posts and on her social media posts about the effect of the pandemic on her, on her mental health, on how she's been holding it together, and how her business has survived. So, Christine, welcome to the show. Hi, Brenda. Thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. So what I had wanted to, to talk with you today is, is just kind of give me an overview, give all of us an overview of what it's been like to start a business and then the pandemic hit and you're here today and you still got your business. <laughs> well, a little bit of it feels like uh, a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> all, all wrapped up with uh, what's, what's looking like hopefully the dream returning, which, you know, keeping fingers crossed. Um, but it's definitely been tough. I mean, it's almost hard to go back two years, isn't it? It's hard, it's hard to almost remember mm. what those first few months were like. Um, I mean, I remember just instantly thinking, okay, I need to do something to help people feel good because the world feels really heavy and there's nothing going on out there and we really need to bring some energy to people. So I started kind of looping together different people in the community and doing different virtual events for free. And I'd hop on Zoom and we'd have fun and, you know, just bring some energy to people. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, it kind of turned into this forever, you know, yeah. lasting uh, pandemic, which we weren't, none of us were expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so naturally I had to sort of look at ways that I couldn't just, you know, entertain anymore. It had to uh, bring in an income. So, uh, you know, I think like many entrepreneurs just started getting really creative and thinking of ways and things that I could do to bring value to people. Um, and again, to raise their spirits, but also, you know, uh, put a little money in, in my pocket so that I could make it through um, to get back out there and start doing tours again. Um, so, cause naturally, I mean, my business is very customer forward. Uh, you know, we get in a vehicle together, we travel to wineries and breweries and cideries and we have food and it's a very social event. And so to not have any of that, Mm -hmm. um, just getting really creative with, you know, using the land of virtual, um, which many, I think so many of us, we've all become so accustomed (laughs) to using uh, the land of virtual and, um, you know, created different like virtual cocktail parties and worked with a friend who was a DJ and we did, you know, music bingo and cocktails and, you know, just did all kinds of, had like a Nick Benninger in, we did like a taco farm, we, we made some food and cocktails together. It was just a ton of fun. Um, we, so we've done a lot of those kinds of different things to really engage people. And, um, and then of course, you know, I, I think that the greatest challenge has been that, you know, it's, it was a matter of, okay, how do I, you know, how do I find my legs here? How do I, you know, manage to keep afloat? And then, oh, that now I'm open again. Okay, okay, now I can go and open my doors. 
And then it was like, no, no, now you got to close your doors again. Okay, okay, now I'm going to go back to what I was doing yeah. or a different version of that. And then and then it's, you're open again and then you're closed again. So I think that that was really hard because you, you it's really hard to, to, to gain any inertia. Um, you're constantly shifting gears and you're constantly, you know, trying new things and creating new things, which, you know, in one in one sense, um, you know, I'm really grateful that I'm a creative person and I look for the good and I find the best in every situation. I did that a lot through the pandemic, but the other flip side to that is it's exhausting mm-hmm. to be constantly in this, you know, fight or flight. And, you know, is this thing I'm going to do, is it going to work? Is it going to stick? And, you know, can it make, can it keep me afloat? And what if the tours never come back? You know, like the, there's so much worry and constant, um, you know, energy going to the unknowns that it's, it's, it's been tough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm always amazed at the, the true strength and spirit of entrepreneurs, you know, small business, the backbone of our community and how, how you survive. How did you sustain just your own positive mental health during this time? Cause it has not been easy. No, it sure hasn't. Um, you know, I, um, I did lots of walking uh, and the first several months, but we lost our dog actually during the pandemic. But before we did, you know, we were constantly out for walks, um, seeking out the good, you know, trying to find positives in every day, which I, you know, was, was definitely and, and is continues to be a bit of a struggle, especially considering the, the situation we're in now across the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's, it's, I think that's been a big part of it is getting out and moving, um, trying to eat as healthy as possible. Although <laughs> I failed that very many times. <laughs> we all. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but, um, you know, I think that it's been, you know, having those select few people in my life who are like literally my my pillars, you know, those people that I could always go to and I could cry with them or I could celebrate with them. Um, and we just kind of helped each other through this thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and helped pick each other up. And I, of course, you know, I also reached out and, and uh, you know, did some talk therapy. And you know, because that, I think that the biggest the biggest thing I think is releasing all of this energy that we're picking up, and all of this uncertainty, and all of this worry. Um, you know, picking it all up and letting it out. And and you know, it's funny. I I've shared a few times through social media. You know that I've become a regular crier. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's not because I'm always sad. I mean, there's definitely always like an underlying, you know, it's like this, oh my gosh, like when's this going to be done, right? Um, but it, it, the, the crying for me is a, it's a release. It, it allows me to pick up all that stuff that I've, mm-hmm. you know, dragged around with me and literally just let it out of my body. And um, that has honestly been such a saving grace. And, uh, you know, just just focusing on, Someday, uh, you know, this is going to come to an end. It has to come to an end. Mm-hmm. And you know what? If if at the end of the day, I kind of just told myself at the end of the day, if for any reason my business doesn't survive, I will find a way to survive and I will create something new. And you know, it, it was it was sort of detaching. As much as I love my business, it, it's it's done well considering uh, you know the pandemic has been in the middle. Um, but it's, it's, it's not everything in the sense that I can always create something else and, and it's an extension of me anyway, right? So I will always be able to create something else new that is, that is also an extension of, of what I can bring and what my gifts are, um, and help people, you know, kind of tap into and focus on that joy and that good side of life. So. Wow. You are a true entrepreneur. Oh my gosh. (laughs) What is your advice for, for others who are kind of trying to just, you know, get back into their businesses and, and get moving forward. What's your advice? 
Oh, you know, I think, first of all, it's honestly find a space that you can just cry out your feelings when you need to. It sounds silly and, you know, almost like, um, you know, some people may look at, you know, shedding those tears as a weakness, but I think it's an absolute strength, especially in today's, um, you know, in this place that we're surviving. Um, So definitely letting those emotions out, but finding those couple of people that you can talk with and be real with, because Mm -hmm. let's be honest, I mean, you know, as much as I put good energy out into the world and I, you know, I believe in focusing on the good, you know, we all have to get the the madness out, right? We all yeah. we all have to shake out all of the feelings that we're that we're running into the the real challenges. Like, can I put food on my table tonight? You know, how am I going to pay for my mortgage? Um, you know, can I keep the van running or do I have to give it up? Like all of these things mm-hmm. that you know you don't really have those conversations with everybody. But having one or two people in your life that you can go to and just be honest, and they're not trying to fix it because we can't fix it, right? They're not trying to fix it. They're just trying to be in the ear and support you and maybe cry with you. And, you know, I, I think that that's, that's, that's it. And I think, it's, too, at the end of the day is just somewhere in your mind, in your heart, just know that it, it will come to an end. Yeah. At some point, this will be over. And it doesn't make it easier saying you saying that. Um, but at some point, the sun will shine. And we just have to keep taking it day by day and just keep going in the direction um, that we want to go. That's really, maybe that sounds too simple, but, you know, it's It's just, and and I think too, like honoring that you're not going to feel great and it's okay, you know, like it's okay to not be, you know, I I run into people sometimes and they're like, oh, you don't see yourself today. And I'm like, you know what? I'm kind of having a bad day. Like it's okay to have a bad day or a week, (laughs) you know, um, to, to, to take that time because that's the reality in the world that we're living in right now. So you know, being real and authentic, I think is really what it comes down to. And, and you truly are, Christine. You really are. So so um, would you do it again, knowing what you know now? Would you start your own business and be an entrepreneur again? Oh, gosh, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I, it's funny because throughout this pandemic, a lot of friends have said, or a lot of people that I know, they're like, oh, what are you going to do? Maybe you'll have to go get a job. And, you know, I think this 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 very core of me, has been uh, an entrepreneur in some sense all of my life. And I think once you've jumped off this huge cliff and you've seen some success in what you can do and you're not as afraid, right? Like you've done the big hard thing and you've taken that leap of faith and you've done that and you're, you're in the midst of it and you're like, Hey, if I can survive this, (laughs) you know, and if I could have jumped off a ledge once I can do it again. Right. So it, it, you know, the idea of going in, you know, uh, just employment (laughs) for me is it will never, I can't say never, but it's not in my intention to ever go and look for work again. It's always my intention to, you know, build on uh, either this or something else that, you know, will bring joy and, and leave me feeling like I'm leaving an imprint on the world of, of good. Yeah. And just keeping going with that. You so. are. And I've got the biggest smile on my face because you're so <laughs> positive and, and Buzz Tour companies ready to go. We're getting launched and ready to go. We've got some changes happening this year. Um, this whole time I've sort of been running just small groups with a, with a van of for four to six people. And I'm uh, shortly going to be announcing, but I'll tell you because not everybody will yeah, be Yeah, it's a secret right now. Don't yeah, Nobody will hear. Yeah. Okay, maybe I won't tell everything. But I will say that there are some great things coming. Um, and uh, there's lots of things to be looking forward to. And most of our experiences allow you to be outside for a good portion of the day. So, you know, it's, it's something that we can, we can likely do, uh, even if there are some limitations put on. And uh, we're excited to get out there. I've got a small team and we're all buzzing and ready to go. So, 
yeah, soon soon things are launching, and uh, we'll, we should be ready to get out for the season by April 1st. Looking forward to it, Darlene. Thank you so yes. much, and good luck with everything. Thank you so much, Brenda. It was great chatting with you. Thanks, Christine. Thanks. Bye. All right, Polly, take us to a break. And we still have more to talk about. So following along with our theme for this half hour, we're, we're talking to local business owners on how COVID has impacted your business and what you've had to do to survive, how you've had to pivot, what have been your challenges. And I'm really thrilled to have on, on the show Stephanie Sulis, who is the owner of Little Mushroom Catering. I've been following Stephanie for years. She's an incredible entrepreneur. And Stephanie, um, she disappeared from our phone line. Steph, call back in. She's calling back in, I think. We have her here. So I know with a lot of the businesses locally, they've had to pivot. They've had to change. As you heard Christine talk, there have been really dark times. There have been really low times. And then you, then over the past few years, they were, were reaching highs and then reaching lows again because, you know, one when we were opening and then the next we were not open. And I, I just don't know how businesses have survived. And we've got Stephanie's back. Hi, Steph. Hi, Brenda. Nice to hear you, and thank you so much for joining the show. So I'd love to hear from you how you and your incredible business, Little Mushroom Catering, has survived the past few years of COVID. Yeah, absolutely. I've got quite the quite the pivots, quite the story to tell. Um, we moved to our brand new, uh, at the time, brand new location, 7,200 square feet of kitchen space um, in at the end of February of 2020, and then March happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that awful, awful Friday the 13th. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so since then, um, you know, we've been really kind of stuck with restrictions because even though, you know, restaurants have been able to, you know, open at half capacity and then full capacity and, and all the different rules changing there, on the catering side of things, um, the rules have been much more stringent, uh, especially around um, events in people's homes and in people's backyards. So we really had to change our business model over the last two years. And we've done quite a few different things to uh, to try out. Um, so we we started our first pivot was we had all this food in the fridge and had to do something with it. Uh, so we turned um, what we had into freezer meals and then started an online store. So we've got a shop on our website now and we actually turned our um our little um boardroom uh here in our space into a food store hmm. where we sell local products so everything from sauces and and um you know, ice cream and popcorn and whatever else, whatever else we yeah. can get from from local providers we sell all of that through our shop but then also the freezer meals so that was our first big pivot um yeah, and then we've done a bunch more since then. So you want to hear it all? I know you have, but you know, I, I'm really curious about how you've, you know, mentally and emotionally dealt with the ups and downs of the past two years. Like, what's kept you going? Um, Knowing that there are so many people counting on us. Yeah. That really has been the driving force. So between my staff, because um, pre-pandemic, I, I had about 35 staff, um, but over the last two years, you know, some have moved on to completely different industries um, where others have, have stuck it through with us, uh, but very up and down there. Uh, and then also all of our couples, we do so many weddings. And I know you know that, Brenda, from, I do. from your wedding side of things, too. Um, 
so many couples that are relying on us that, you know, had booked us in 2018. We're supposed Mm -hmm. to get married in 2020 and things have just been pushed, pushed and pushed. So yeah, lots of people counting on us. You do, but but I'm I'm coming back to you. You avoided the question. How did you personally wake up every morning when things were tight? What gave you the What gave you the um, you know, kind of the strength to go on? What what when you woke up and you're like, damn, there's going to oh, excuse me, live radio, darn, there's going to be another you know shutdown, or we we're so close. How, what kept you motivated and strong? Um, I have a really fantastic partner um, who makes it really easy for me to. To not make money yeah. when when those times are tight. Um, but I always say, well, I'm the one who's literally bringing home the bacon. Um, and it was good bacon. <laughs> yeah, it's great bacon. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's just been a matter of, you know, knowing that what I do affects so many other people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that sense of, um, yeah, the, the fact that people were relying on me was, was really what, what pushed us forward. You know, and that's a um, true story of an entrepreneur, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Especially those of us, you know, who have, who have built businesses as, as opposed to people who are, are consultants or solopreneurs. You know, there's, there's so many more people counting on us that we got to get it done and we got to come up with a new way to do it. There's no time to, to sit back and feel sorry for yourself. No. You just <laughs> kept going. Like every time I, I looked at social media, you were starting something new. So what is your latest, like where are you at now? Yeah, our, our latest thing, it's, it's kind of came from nowhere. Uh, certainly was not in my three, five, or even 10-year business plan. So I always say to, to other entrepreneurs, you know, it's good to have a plan, but make sure that you're okay mm-hmm. to deviate from that mm-hmm. plan if something presents itself. And so last summer, what presented itself to us was Descendants Brewery came to me and said, hey, we're not talking to anybody else. We're only talking to you. Will you do this for us? Let's make this happen. And and basically gave us their kitchen facility. Um, so we run all of the food side of things at Descendants Brewery for their space now. Um, and then since then, we've had other people come to us and ask us to do the same thing. So we are now running the kitchen at Babylon Sisters Wine Bar oh. um, in Uptown Waterloo. So it just opened last fall. And, uh, and yeah, they have us doing their kitchen there now. We're doing the kitchen at Sugar Run Speakeasy in downtown Kitchener, um, where we provide all of the, the food. Their, their staff plate it all, uh, but it's all made here at our main facility in Cambridge. Um, and then also uh, in about a month from now, when golf courses open and the snow melts, um, we'll be taking over uh, the clubhouse and all events, um, the food side of things again at uh, Mary Hill Golf Course between Kitchener and Guelph. Oh my gosh, Steph! Yeah, that's, that's a lot of stuff whole, happening. Whole other business model that's that's working really well with what we currently have going, and then and then of course, yeah, wedding season is just it's it's coming in hard and fast. So, <laughs> so if if uh, the pandemic hadn't happened, would you be in this position now? Would you have taken all these risks and just gone for it? I really don't think so. It's definitely mm-hmm. been. Uh, when when I started the business almost 12 years ago now, um, when I started the business, I was doing, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Let's try this out. Let's go here and let's let's see if it makes sense for us to partner with a hotel or let's do this other event, you know, and and make this happen somewhere else. And then we really streamlined. So in 20, I'd say 2017, we made 
the conscious decision to really streamline and focus solely on full service event catering. And so 2017, 2018, 2019, that was our bread and butter. You know, we weren't doing anything really outside of the full service realm. And then the pandemic hit and then we went back to, okay, we'll take anything. Yeah. Opportunities come up. Let's take it. Let's try it out. If it doesn't work, then we'll scrap it. But let's let's go for it. And what's so, what's your best advice to people who are, you know, kind of coming out of this or thinking of starting their own business because they maybe lost their jobs? Give them some good advice stuff. Well, okay. My number one advice is that we're hiring for so many positions right now. So don't start your own business. Come and work for us. <laughs> That's my number one advice. If you really want to do it yourself, um, just yeah, be open to opportunities, um, and 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 don't be afraid to to put the lid on something if mm-hmm. if it's not working. Mm-hmm. Put it back on the shelf. Maybe you can come back to it later, but um, yeah, don't don't keep trying to to do things if they aren't working out. That's great advice because I think sometimes, especially with startups and founders, they 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 have trouble shutting their baby down. Yeah, and I think it was oh maybe eight years ago, Larry uh, Larry Smith was it the economics professor from U. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. I I went to see him speak. I've seen him speak a few times now, but he was talking all about getting out of a swamp. So mm-hmm. if you're an entrepreneur and you're you're feeling like you're in a swamp and that there's just no hope then get out of the swamp. Forget that. Start with something new. You know, try try something else, but don't keep slogging away at something if it's not working. That's great advice. Get out of the swamp and jump in the ocean, which you have done, Stephanie Sulis of uh, Little Mushroom Catering. Uh, totally inspiring story. Really proud of your success and what you've done. Uh, you're a true entrepreneur and you're leading the pack. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. And uh, I'm going to be coming to some of your places and tasting your delicious food again. Wonderful. Yeah. Come check us out. We've got lots of lots of things on the go now. And soon, soon, hopefully uh, for Easter weekend, we'll be opening our wine bar in Cambridge as well. Oh, that's wonderful news. Thank you so much, Steph. Thanks, Brenda. Bye-bye. Wow. Stories from real people at real time doing real things. You know, and I, I just wanted to end the, the show talking to our local business community, and I hope to do that with others um, because I, I heard I might be on the show a few more times. But, and I'm really pleased. And I want to thank all of you for your time and listening today to the Kitchener Today Show. My name is Brenda Halloran. I have finished my first actual show, and I want to thank you for staying with me through the whole time and um, thank you Polly thank you Brittany have a wonderful day hug each other tight thank you so much